Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. I'm reminded this morning that anger destroys. Received an email this morning that described a local congregation that was so divided, so fraught with disunity and anger and fighting. Just reminds me that anger destroys. We have no shortage of examples of angry Christians today. Maybe you've read some of the headlines in recent years. You've read about Mark Driscoll and the controversy with Mars Hill. You've heard the names of so many individuals that have split congregations. And it's not just this kind of mega church, large church, mega pastor kind of problem. It happens in our small churches as well. I hear stories all the time of abusive patterns of leadership I hear stories of churches and congregations that are divided over things like pews and chairs and other things. Sometimes they're divided over more substantive things, but they're still divided. We asked the question this morning, how does this happen? How can those who traffic so readily in concepts like grace and mercy become so quick to bring angry condemnation to one another? See, what I think happens is this, the thy will of Christian ministry and the my will of my sinfulness get mixed up. And suddenly the personal desires aren't met so that there's this explosive anger that comes out. I remember as a kid, I got in my first fight. Mark Espinall and I, we were playing football in the backyard. I was fourth grade, and I went home. I was angry about something, and he came and he pushed me on the shoulders, and he said, you want to go? And I punched him in his face, and it wasn't good. When I was in sixth grade, I was in the bathroom at my local school, and Rob Hubbard came up to me and said, are you talking about me? And surely I was. And I punched him in his face, and it wasn't good. say that to make light of the situation, but what I learned in those moments was this, I get what I want when I fight. I wasn't learning how to dialogue with someone else, how to submit my desires to the lordship of the Christ who I claimed to follow. My desires won the day. And as much as I had built some false self-confidence in those moments, it wasn't good. Why do we fight? Why do we quarrel? See, when we come to Exodus 17, we've seen a grumbling and now quarreling people. 
they're discontented with the things that God has wrought in their situation. Never mind the glorious kind of escape that they made from Egypt. Never mind the provision that God made for them. Never mind the presence of God literally in front and behind them in cloud and fire. They were upset with the provision in the moment. What have you done for me lately? So in Exodus 17, this is what I think we find. That God provides his spiritual water through our quarrel with him. And it's not to baptize our fighting. It's to say that our fighting becomes the context for God's grace. Our fighting, our quarrel with God that we have actually becomes the the context for which he shows us his mercy and his kindness. See, time and time again, what God is doing in the story of Exodus is he's just re-revealing himself to Israel. And this morning, he's inviting them to consider another part of his patient, loving care toward them. So I want to turn to these seven verses that we have at the beginning of Exodus chapter 17. We've got this notion of fighting in the back of our mind. We've got this kind of big idea. God provides his spiritual water through our quarrel with him. And I want to see it in two different parts. First, we fight because we don't get what we want. We're going to see this in verses 1 through 3. And then in verses 4 through 7, that God graciously provides through his servant, through his chosen one, Moses. And so let's just dive in here in Exodus chapter 7 or 17, verses 1 through 3. He says this, he says, all the congregations of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? See, the people, they, first they, we get this recording, that they leave the wilderness and arrive at this place called Rephidim in verses 1 and 2. They move out of this uh, old location by stages. That means that they go from location to location, as it were. And they get to this place called Rephidim. And again, there's no water for them there. So verse 2 tells us that Israel quarrels with Moses and demands water. And let's not be dismissive here for a second, right? That water is kind of a big deal. I don't know if you know that or not. Like you kind of have to have water to live, right? The survivalists tell us that there's the law of three, right? You can go about three minutes without oxygen. You can go about three weeks without food. You can go about three days without water. And so water is a big deal. And it's also kind of frustrating that this is now the second time in this little kind of uh, road trip that Israel's taking that they've come to a location that doesn't have drinkable water. Back in chapter 15, if you remember, they come to this place called Mara that has this bitter, undrinkable water that every time you drink of it, you get sick. And so God tells Moses to throw a log into the water supply, and it fixes everything. But here they are in Genesis 17, and again, they have no drinking water. But what was simply grumbling in chapters 15 and 16 now becomes an all-out quarrel with Moses. We don't know what this fight looked like. 
We don't know if there's punches thrown. We don't know if it looks like a, an MMA fight. We have no idea. We don't know if it's name calling or slapping each other. What's going on? All we know is that Moses is so afraid that when he speaks to God in verse four, he's afraid that they're going to stone him, that they're going to kill him. Notice that the argument can be summed up in here, verses two and three. See, both Moses and Israel are asking why questions. Verse 2, Moses says to Israel, why do you test the Lord? Look at what he says there in in verse 3. Excuse me, verse 2. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Remember last chapter, that was the whole discussion. Who am I that you grumble against me? Why are you quarreling me? I don't have any control over this situation. I don't control where there's water and where there's not water. And the second question is, why do you test the Lord? Now, this is an interesting development because in the last two chapters, God has said that he is going to test his people Israel. In chapter 15, he tests them with the commandment. He says, if you trust in me, I'll provide for you, basically. In chapter 16, uh, there's another test that's provided that uh, he's going to provide bread for them. But on the sixth day, he would provide a double portion, that that's the test he's going to put in front of them. So God is testing his people. But now Moses is saying, why are you testing the Lord? How does that work? See, Israel's combative spirit is a sign of their insubordination. God has now brought them to the same problem they experienced in chapter 15, and rather than learning from their previous lesson, they continue with their grumbling and with their quarreling. So they're testing God's patience. Now listen to Israel's argument to Moses. Essentially, did we come here to die? Look at what he says in verse 3. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Why did you bring us here, Moses? Why did you deliver us from Egypt? Now, we're just going to stop and recognize, did Moses deliver the people from Egypt? No. God delivered the people from Egypt, right? This question is valid, but it's framed in the wrong sense, isn't it? Moses, why did you bring us here? You know, I'm reminded this morning that if you if you corner an animal, you're in a bad spot, aren't you? I heard a story from a friend that described a possum that was in his backyard, and they kind of cornered it to this fence, and the possum bared its teeth, and all the fur on its back raised up. They made itself look bigger. They uh, would hiss and snarl. They were kind of like that, aren't we? When we don't get what we want, We tend to bare our teeth, the hair on our back raises, maybe not literally, but figuratively. We tend to show ourselves as hissing and snarling to get what we want out of the moment, don't we? See, our fights reveal the state of our hearts. The things we're willing to throw down over Reveal the the wayward nature of our hearts. James says this in James chapter 4. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet, covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. See, James is highlighting something here. James tells us that the reason we fight with one another is because of our passions and desires that wage war within us. We want what we want, and we're willing to fight to get it. 
you go down into Walmart and you go down the toy aisle and you see the child throwing the fit on the floor. It's not because he thought that was going to be fun and a happy time. He's throwing the fit, laying on the floor because he wants the toy. He does so because he wanted something more than he wanted obedience. See, the truth is you and I get angry and fight because we want something. Let's take a step back here for a second and realize that there is a good way to fight. Okay, that Just take me in context here for a second, right? There's a quote from J. Gresham Machen. And if you know anything about J. Gresham Machen, he was one who was uh, really fighting for the true nature of the gospel in the 1920s. And he says this, he says, when principles that run against your deepest convention, convictions win the day, then battle is your calling and peace has become sin. You must, at the price of dearest peace, lay your conviction bare before friend and enemy with all the fire of faith. See, there's a time in which we take up fighting, where we actually stand for our convictions, where we actually live in confrontation to someone else. This is the reason that John the Baptist calls these Pharisees broods of vipers. And it's the reason that Jesus takes up a whip in a temple because zeal for his father's house consumed him. But notice each example has this heavenly priority that John the Baptist is confronting these religious leaders. Jesus is confronting these religious leaders for the sake of the gospel. These fights are about the purpose of God, not about the purpose of man. And on the whole, we often fight over concerns that are bound up in our own heart and not shared by the heart of our Father. See, we raise our voice, we slander and gossip, we even get into physical altercations because we want something so badly, we're willing to disobey God to get it. Shockingly, God has a way of meeting us in our fight-or-flight kind of nature with His grace. See, the remainder of this story highlights a particular means of God's grace. And so we read on in verses 4 through 7. So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you will strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called uh, the name of that place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they had tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? What's happening here? How do we understand it? Well, first, Moses goes to God in prayer, which is always a good place to start when you're kind of under pressure, right? Moses' prayer, specifically in verse 4, is help. Israel wants to kill me, right? Look at verse 4. What shall I do with this people? What am I supposed to do with these people? Or they, they almost are ready to stone me. And so Moses faces this dilemma, and he voices this dilemma to the Lord. He says he knows he's responsible for this people, but these people want to kill him. How can he lead these people when there is such mistrust between, between himself and Israel? We see this a lot today, don't we? We see that distrust forms between uh, such groups as, as uh, in the workplace or in schools or in politics or in churches. 
But there's a significant difference here with Moses. God has called Moses to this particular work, and now he is going to work out this circumstance in such a way to, to clarify that Moses is his man for the job. Look at what happens. God's response to this prayer is, is laid out for us in verses 5 and 6. He starts off with these very specific instructions. He says to pass before Israel in verse 5. The Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people. Whatever God is about to do, it was going to be public. He wanted uh, this to be a very public happening. He wanted Moses to specifically lead the people of Israel to this new location. And God specifically wants to be Moses to be present before those people. He wants to show whatever's about to happen to all of the Israelites. He has them take two different things. First, he has them take the elders of Israel. That's just the old people in the congregation, right? The, the wisdom of, of the people of Israel. And then secondly, he's supposed to take the staff. Give verse 5. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you, you struck the Nile and go. First, let's talk about these elders we were to go back through the book of Exodus time and time again, Moses is to talk, Moses and Aaron are to talk to the elders of Israel. They're to kind of gather together these respected, wise persons and present the words that God has spoken to them. It's kind of a, a confirmation. It was a way of validating this leadership for Israel. It's the elders, if the elders kind of heard this word from God and approved it, it kind of validated that to the rest of Israel. And so God used the elders to validate Moses as God's man. But it's not just that. God tells Moses to grab this staff. And if we remember all the plagues of Egypt back in former parts of Exodus, time and time again, Moses or Aaron were to grab the staff of God to wave it over this body of water or this land or do something with it so that God could show that he was with these people and actually bring about these plagues upon the land of Egypt. Now, God is bringing Moses to the elders in all Israel. It's this kind of designation as Moses as the man, right? Verse 6 tells us that he's supposed to strike this rock for water. He's supposed to specifically go back to Mount Horeb. If you know anything about Mount Horeb, that's where Moses met God in the first place. In Exodus chapter 3, he goes, he's tending to his sheep, and he sees this burning bush that doesn't burn up. And in it is the presence of God. That is Mount Horeb. That's where he's supposed to go back. Once again, another validating theme for Moses. He's going back to the place that he met God. He's bringing the elders for confirmation. He's got the staff of God and he's going to strike the rock, and it's going to bring water forth. In fact, that's exactly what he does in 6 and 7. Moses carries out God's design. Moses does as God requires. Verse 6, he says, Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. You may not remember this. Back in Exodus 7, that was what the formula was, right? That God commanded and Moses did exactly as the Lord commanded. As he's being obedient, he's showing himself as the capable leader that God has put over his people Israel. You see also that the elders are there. They're there to witness. So God uses Moses to bring water out of the rock. God meets his quarreling people with his gracious provision. He specifically chooses to showcase his chosen leader in the process. And then Moses commemorates this again. You remember last week we had this 
issue with manna. Uh, the Israelites didn't have br- bread, so God provides bread from heaven, and they're supposed to go and clean it up. And every morning they get up and they collect bread. And one of the things that Moses does at the end of the chapter is he collects an ephah of this manna, and he puts it in a jar to be stored in the presence of God so that the generations of Israel would know about God's provision for his people. And so God, or Moses, had commemorated exactly what God had done to provide for them. Well, now Moses commemorates this in a different way, doesn't he? He names this place Massa and Meribah. You're like, what does that mean? The word Massa means testing, quarreling. I think I forget which one is which, but one of them means testing and one of them means quarreling. But regardless, Moses is naming these cities and saying, this is where you tested God. This is where you quarreled with me. It's a way of remembering because uh, in verse 7, he says, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? You might see this sometimes, right? You, you see the situation in, in Walmart where the child is throwing himself on the floor. What you shouldn't see is a parent who returns it in kind. You shouldn't see a parent who threatens violence. You shouldn't th- see a parent who name calls, who sinks down to their level, right? Wouldn't that be disturbing? Maybe you have witnessed that. It's really hard as a parent to know what to do in those situations. The kid's yelling, everybody in the Walmart is just gathering around, like watching. What a good parent should do is find a redemptive way to deal with that, shouldn't they? To get down on the child's level, to point out what you're doing is not right. You're throwing a fit because you want something, but I'm going to tell you, you're not going to get that thing. And right now, we need to behave properly or there will be consequences in the future. See, a good parent knows how to take a child's fighting and redirect it and orient it to not just tear down the child, but actually to rebuild them. He takes our quarreling and our fighting and redirects it to build up and sustain See, in the same way, our God takes our quarrel with him and leads us to God's gracious provision in Christ. I don't know if you've ever seen this. We were just in John as a church. We went through John. We preached through John. But as we went through John, there was this constant conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. It kind of showed up in various ways. In John chapter 1, in the intro, John chapter 1, verse 11, it says that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. Jesus came as this rejected Messiah. This becomes just this point of emphasis in John. In John chapter 5, Jesus uh, uh, points out uh, of all the collaboration of his testimony about himself, and he talks about how uh, John the Baptist testified about him, Jesus' works testified about him, the Father testified about him, the Word testifies about him, but still these religious Pharisees do not see him, even though the words testify about him. In John chapter 5, earlier, he healed on the Sabbath. And because he healed on the Sabbath, these Pharisees have these big questions about who Jesus is. In John chapter 8, Jesus has this confrontation with the Pharisees in which he says those caustic words, you are of your father, the devil. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man born blind. And when the Pharisees learn that he healed, uh, they say he's lying because he works on the Sabbath. 
It all kind of culminates to John chapter 11 after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, which should be this uh, end of discussion, kind of confirmation of Jesus' lordship. But what happens is these religious leaders, they respond differently. The chief priests in John chapter 11, they gather together and they say, what are we to do? And Caiaphas speaks up and he says, it's better for one man to die for all the people saying, we're going to murder this man. We're going to put this man to death. We cannot have this happening in our midst. We must end him. And so everything is escalating in the book of John. Israel's quarrel with Jesus will lead to Jesus's death. And Jesus lovingly drew out the fighting nature of these religious leaders in Israel. He intentionally pushes their buttons, twice performing public miracles on the Sabbath in order to draw out their self-righteousness, to draw out their anger against God, to draw out their rebellious nature. And what happens is that Jesus meets our violent rebellion against Him with a posture of grace and mercy. See, our fighting against God becomes the context and the cause of His grace. Let's just break that statement down. Our fighting against God becomes the context and ultimately the cause of His grace toward us. Let's talk about this, this context. We were still sinners when Christ died for us. Hebrews 12 says that He endured from sinners such hostility against Himself. Jesus performed miracles, fed the needy, was generally loving and kind, but He was met with murderous hostility. This loving quarrel from our gracious King took all of our rebellion and subdued it through His loving self-sacrifice. See, that's the context that God shows His grace to us while we were still sinners. Not because we had done good things or someday we might perform good things or God saw potential in us or we were spiritually sensitive. No, God met you while you were still sinning with grace. He didn't call you because you deserved it. He called you because He's gracious and kind and merciful. The context of His grace to us is not one that we deserved grace and mercy. God showed us love while we were still sinning against Him. While we were still fighting against Him. While we were still rebelling against Him, God showed grace. It's not just the context, then. It's the cause of His grace. Our fighting against God is the cause. In God's great irony, He uses our sinful rebellion to bring about our, sub, our subduing. All our hate and violence against the righteousness of God comes gushing out at Calvary. We're piercing, flogging, mocking, beating, crucifying. And if you want to know who you are in and of yourself, you are the Roman centurion. You are Pilate. You are Caiaphas. You are Peter. Yours is the betrayal, the cowardice, the blame shifting, the murderer. That, friends, is who we are. We are complicit in Jesus' death because we ourselves have rebelled against the righteous and holy God. And if we were there with whip in hand, or with hammer and nails, we would have actively participated in the crucifixion of Jesus in our sinfulness. We would have shouted, crucify, crucify him. 
but it's our fiendish life that leads to redemption. While our wrath at God is displayed at Calvary, God's glorious grace is also displayed at Calvary. There's a a martial arts form. I'm way out of my boundaries here, okay? Let's just acknowledge that. But it uses the natural momentum of your enemy to bring about their subjugation. I think it's judo or something like that. But if someone comes at you, you subdue them with their own momentum. Isn't that what God is doing here? Using the natural sinful momentum of our hearts to bring about our redemption and mercy. So the truth is this morning that God brings water from a rock. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians 10. Peter or Paul, Paul is saying, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed him and the rock was Christ. Paul looks at this passage and he interprets it and he says, this is a picture of who Jesus is. That when all of our rebellion was lined up against God, all of our fighting and all of our uh, rebellion against Him was lined up, we were going to strike the rock, which was Christ, and God was going to bring life-giving water for us. Jesus was the rock that was split, and from His veins flowed life-giving water for thirsty, rebellious sinners like you and I. You might say, that's great, Jason. What in the world does this have to do with me? How do I... How do we kind of take this lesson and apply it to ourselves? What does this display of grace have to do with us? See, our fights show us the corners of our hearts that are unaffected by the gospel. Fights show us the corners of our hearts that are unaffected by the gospel. If James is correct, we fight and quarrel because of our desires. There's this passage in the Psalms, in Psalm 133, where uh, it's only like three verses long, but uh, the psalmist is saying, he said, you know, how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. And then he gives us two pictures. He says it's like air, or, uh, oil flowing down the, the uh, beard of Aaron. So when you anointed someone, they would the oil would kind of flow from the top of your head down your beard and onto your shirt. That's picture number one. Picture number two is, like dew on a mountain that comes from heaven and it comes down the mountain. See, the picture's there. Picture something that's happening. It's coming from above to below that when unity and peace come about, it's because God brings it about. How good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. That peace, that unity comes from above to us. We might also recognize that the division that we have, like James says, comes from within us. comes from us, from inside of us. See, I want to give us three truths this morning that I think remind us that quarreling is not for Christians, that fighting is not for Christians, or at least this sinful kind of infighting that we have so often. Here's our three truths, and I'll give them to you and then kind of unpack them, right? God has done away with divisions in Christ. God has done away with divisions in Christ. God's grace has renewed our nature, and God's grace has placed His Son at the center of our community. God's grace has done away with the divisions. God's grace has renewed our nature. God's grace has placed His Son at the center of our community. Let's start with this first one. God's grace has done away with our divisions. You remember this in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul is speaking to Jews and Gentiles, and he said that he's torn down the dividing wall of hostility 
that he's speaking about an ethnic racial matter. And he says, there's, there's no division between you. Now God has torn down this dividing wall of hostility that it doesn't exist. And in Galatians chapter three, Paul says that there's this new identity in Christ so that there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free man, male or female. It's not to say that those distinctions are gone, but that they're subsumed under a greater identity that we have in Christ. That now we're made new in Christ so that our divisions are done away with. No, we're no longer German or Irish or African. We are Christians who happen to be German or Irish or African. Our Christianity doesn't erase the distinction. It simply makes it less important than the most central fact about us that we belong to Christ. See, it's worth noting that the New Testament isn't shy about what to do with people who cause division. And Paul speaks about it in Romans chapter 16, that we are to avoid those who cause, cause division. And he warns Timothy to flee uh, the I. Uh, the people who cause divisions in Ephesus. John tells us that we shouldn't even let false teachers into our household, that those who cause divisions are to be avoided or to be confronted in our midst. God does not bring us together in Christ to divide us by silly, insignificant matters. God brings us together in Christ to show our unity, our new nature in Christ. Secondly, God's grace has renewed our nature. We don't have to play out the sinful nature anymore. Titus says that we were formerly foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Now he says that we have been saved, that we might devote ourselves to good works. You and I are no longer bound to the fleshiness of our being. We now have the Spirit, and we can walk in step with the Spirit so that we no longer have to be people who just defend our territory. And finally, God's grace has placed His Son at the center of our community. Do you know what's happening right now? Right now, we are people from all different walks of life. Some of us are old. Some of us are young. Some of us are wealthy. Some of us are not. Some of us are... Uh, childbearing, some of us are not. We are in all kinds of stages. But God has brought us together not because of our commonality, outside of our commonality of who we are in Christ. Right? First John says this, he says, our fellowship, we have fellowship with one another because our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We come together not because we all look alike and talk alike, we come together because we have common hope in Jesus Christ. See, if we are in Christ, we have been given the Spirit of God to walk in peace with one another. And when our agendas become the stated agendas of Jesus' church, we're just on the wrong foot, aren't we? This morning, we are recipients of grace and mercy. We're recipients of this water flowing from the rock of Jesus' life. So it brings us together. Let's not let selfishness get in the way of what God wants to unite. I want to pray to that end this morning. I want to pray that the Lord makes us a unified people by His gospel work in Christ. Would you pray with me to that end? Lord, we ask now that You would glorify Your name in our midst, that You would allow us to be unified by our common hope in Jesus. 
Lord, I pray that you would convict us so that our selfish desires wouldn't get in the way of your eternal purposes. Or there's a way of living where we would express our desires as first and foremost. And we would selfishly pursue what we want. Lord, I pray that you would convict us in those moments. That you would honor your name in us as we cling to the gospel and to Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.